Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, we got a bonus episode. We got personal protective equipment uh, by Dr. Nella Povitz and Dr. Sue from the Ottawa Hospital. And we decided to launch this in audio format because the feedback has been tremendous. We've, we've been told that, you know, every healthcare provider should at least listen or even w- watch the webinar to really get a good sense of how to protect yourself and what's needed to protect yourself when dealing with COVID-19. So let us know what you think. Um, also, April 25th, we're doing our first question and answer session where we're looking to get some feedback on the show. Let us know what you think and, and what you think about our, some of our new endeavors, such as these webinars. So without further ado, Dr. Nelopovitz and Dr. Sue. Thank you, everybody, for joining the, the second webinar brought to you by Resource Optimization Network and um, Solving Healthcare Podcast. Um, it is with uh, like true honor and privilege to bring to you uh, Dr. Na- Dave Nelopovich, who is our head of our Department of Critical Care in Ottawa and also uh, the lead in terms of um, the critical care uh, task force leading our uh, pandemic planning, and the one and only Catherine Sue, infectious disease specialist, who I work with both as trained as a, a as a um, as a resident. So um, right. it is kind of cool to be able to do this. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about uh, personal protective equipment. There's a lot of questions regarding what is needed. There was a um, some inconsistencies out in the literature. So our goal was to really uh, solidify what the evidence is out there and to give some guidelines uh, in terms terms of why these recommendations are the way they are. So without further ado, I am going to bring you Dr. David Nelipovitz. Thanks, Squad. And Thank you, Kathy, for agreeing to do this with us because uh, certainly uh, we're jumping into the deep end. Um, When we started working on this, um, I was worried. And after doing it for a while, now I'm afraid um, to present because I tell you, this is like doing a talk on politics or religion or the environment. No matter what we're going to say today, we're going to offend someone. Um, and someone's going to be unhappy, certainly with me. Uh, no one could be unhappy with Kathy, um, but let's do her best. Um, and she'll be the voice of reason. Um, she'll provide the sage advice. She's the person behind the curtain there, uh, moving all the devices on in uh, the Wizard of Oz. Um, and and I'll, I'm sure she'll agree with me that, that to present... Uh, evidence-based sound uh, presentation on PPE isn't isn't just beyond hard. It, it's near impossible. 
the evidence is, is simply poor. Um, it's also hard because the environment is so poisoned by different opinions. Uh, the fact that we keep changing uh, uh, recommendations, it, it just simply undermines everyone's trust in what's being presented. But we're going to do our best. And Kathy, I'm sure you'll you'll make it all all perfectly clear for everyone uh, before we're done. Sure, Dave. There we go. So, with that kind of proviso, and please rec remember that these are recommendations as of April 18th. You know, who knows what will come out tomorrow or things as such. So, we'll say that several times today. These are the best available recommendations for the given date. So if you're watching this at a later date, recognize things could have changed. And it's not the same in every jurisdiction. So if you're watching from afar, um, you'll have to know what your local environment is like. Let's face it. Um, there's no place in the world right now that has enough uh, PPE. Um, at least we're not getting beaten uh, for protesting that we don't have enough PPE. That's a scene from uh, Pakistan. And I, I think Quad will attest, I'm not a big fan of government, um, but for once, I'm actually not laying all the blame at the, at the feet of, of our government. Um, people say maybe I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, um, or as my colleagues like to say that I'm making the Kool-Aid, uh, just note that it's cherry flavor, if you're curious about that. But these shortages were simply incredible, hard to avoid. Um, and someday I'm sure there'll be a Royal Commission to look at this and find recommendations to help avoid it in the future. But let's face it, um, PPE costs a lot of money. Uh, the other aspect of it is that the stuff expires. Um, and so to have enough on hand for a pandemic um, would be certainly challenging for any country to do. Um, and look, Canada is not unique. Um, everywhere in the world is, has been challenged by this. And so I think our goal here today is, is to come up with the rational use of it, how we can use it to the best um, and most efficacious way and as well as have some strategies how we can increase our, our supply of it. Kathy, I don't know if you have any thoughts uh, about this or, uh, or... No, I think that sets the uh, stage very well. So, with that in mind, this is such a loaded topic um, for people and I think the reason being is quite, quite frankly, it's such a serious situation and I don't know if everyone recognizes uh, Dr. Wen Lang. Um, he's the ophthalmologist, if I recall correctly, from China, who started sounding off the concern about this um, back in early January. And unfortunately, it, the irony of irony is that he ended up catching COVID-19 and unfortunately succumbed to it. Um, rumor has it that he was even placed on ECMO, um, but was uh, unable to to recover from the disorder and so certainly I think um, that really kind of brings it home to all of us health professionals who are dealing with it. In terms of the issues 
mistrust um, is huge. And, and as I like to say when I'm, I'm talking with students and things, the hardest thing for us to establish with families, but the most important thing is trust. Certainly in this situation, there's considerable mistrust. Um, there's anxiety um, ab about things. And it's the belief that the decisions are often being driven by economics, um, which if anything, I don't think is the case. Uh, but it, it adds to the cynicism that everyone has when recommendations get put forth. Um, and mistrust is huge on PPE. Uh, I'm sure, Kathy, you've experienced that as well. Yeah, definitely. One of the big underlying issues um, is the fact that when you see what the recommendations are put forth, and I, I've done a lot of reading on this now, and what I realize is there's not a lot of good evidence out there. Um, and a lot of it is citing the same examples, but interpreting it different ways. When you look at the studies, um, most of the studies for this were based on SARS, um, which were case series or case controls. They're really of limited quality. Uh, for example, they would say we had four cases, this is what happened, and this is why we think it happened. And so there's a lot of limitations in, in what the recommendations are based. There's also extrapolation from other diseases and disorders, um, which is understandable when you don't have a lot of available evidence, but they're not perfect and they're not perfectly transferable. Um, I'll use an example as well, when we, and we'll talk about it later, but the aerosol generating medical procedures. If you look at some of the recommendations for this, by the different countries, you'll see that they differ significantly. And that's quite ironic, at least for me it was, because they all cite the same references. So some, somewhere, somehow, things got lost in translation. And um, that there's the subjectivity and unfortunately opinions that, that get put into the recommendations, which for me, um, leads to confusion and, and mudding of, of the recommendations. Kath, you've read more of the papers than myself. Like, am I missing the, the accurate ones or the high detail ones or high quality ones? Uh, there aren't very many high quality ones, as you said. So um, I, I would agree with what you said, Dave. Uh, the evidence is, is for many of these um, uh, recommendations, very, very limited. And um, as researchers, we'd say the quality of the evidence is, is really low, um, but it's what is available. And that's uh, unfortunately the foundation for many of the recommendations that we have today. And again, particularly with uh, the use of N95 respirators and aerosol generating medical procedures. Um, but there are also uh, questions that are related to PPE in general when we're dealing with these patients where there isn't a lot of evidence, but if you uh, can apply logic, much of it should make sense. That's absolutely right. It's the best available evidence. Logic, uh, I wish would prevail. Um, I say I wish logic would prevail, but uh, at times when it's emotion and things as such, it's understandable that sometimes that, that's secondary.
What's very true uh, for this situation is there are so many voices and opinions that are being um, presented. Um, and let's face it, people are getting a lot of their recommendations and evidence from Facebook or Google, or they're sitting at home watching CNN or, or various news outcasts. And again, a lot of this is then mixed with expert opinion and recommendations from various societies, unions, professional groups. It, it really muddies the water. Um, I'd say it's fake news, but that's too painful a cliche to use for something so serious. Um, for me, it was especially problematic when you see that, that the sources are often the same, but the recommendations are, are quite conflicting. So there's too much noise. That, that for me, was, one of, was problem number one looking at it. So we're going to do our best to simplify, go back to some of the sources and try to clarify, and more importantly, try to give stuff for everyone to how, how can you use it in your day-to-day -day process. So that's the goal, that's the issues, let's, let's get underway. Not going to spend too much time on, on, on the NIOSH for those who actually wonder what it stood for, like, like myself, uh, you can see uh, what it is. This is a hierarchy of controls uh, for, for preventing um, and protecting individuals. And I think the most important thing for me from this is the fact that PPE is the last line of defense. It is the least effective line of defense, but it's the has the highest profile. Um, and it's, it's typically what's under control of the individual as opposed to society or governments or even hospitals or groups. So everyone focuses on that aspect, on PPE, but to do it justice for the protection of, of our staff and, and, and other patients, I think we really need to keep in mind uh, when addressing the issue to, to use the, the full, full gamut um, and look at the more effective tools, which, you know, it's hard for us to eliminate the problem, but certainly the engineering controls, um, that would include various forms of isolation, physical barriers, um, proper ventilation of rooms, um, that reduces the opportunity and the impact of, of human error on, on causing problems. The administrative controls is what I think a lot of us have seen and, and are familiar with, but this includes various policies and procedures, um, various training and education. And it's even simple things like enhanced signage, um, reducing visitors and cohorting patients um, in various fashions. Kath, other aspects of, of the hierarchy that you would like to highlight for, for the audience? Um, clearly, the first two, elimination and substitution, are not relevant here. I think uh, engineering controls are um, the most important. Unfortunately, most of us are working in facilities that do not have optimal engineering controls. Um, and so we're left trying. Th those are not really readily modifiable for most places and um, we are left with basically the infrastructure that we have. So Dave mentioned some things, but for example, in, in future planning of new facilities, things like all private rooms, um, the ability to have negative pressure in every room or a negative pressure unit, 
having split emergency uh, rooms or the potential to be able to split your emergency department so that if you have another pandemic like this, you can readily have symptomatic patients go to one side and non-symptomatic patients come to the other side. Most of our facilities in Ontario certainly are older and uh, can't accommodate uh, or don't have what we would consider to be optimal engineering controls. Administrative uh, controls, um, Dave had mentioned, and, and really those are, we primarily think of those as, as um, policies and procedures and guidance and uh, structure to what we do every day. Um, I would definitely uh, agree that PPE is what everybody focuses on because the impression is that that is what is most important for protection. And in fact, it is, uh, it is definitely the last thing in the hierarchy, but it is what is most um, relevant to healthcare providers on the front lines. Great. Thanks, Scott. With that said, we're going to focus on PPE because um, uh, obviously that's the topic here. A little background though um, about COVID-19 um, and related types of uh, a problem known as SARS. Now, I think we all know the World Health is now struggling for its funding uh, with the recent decision, but for the most part, the message delivered uh, from the WHO has been pretty consistent. Uh, I won't get into the issue of whether they should have declared it a pandemic sooner. Um, what many don't recall, if I recall correctly, was they were criticized for calling H1N1 um, sooner than, than others felt um, they should have. But what I will like to highlight on, on this is the fact that they do consider this a droplet disorder, and we'll go into that in a little bit more at length. Um, I would also highlight the fact they talk about the one meter. And, and I'll, I'll bring this up, not because to, to get pettier or that, You'll see that in the Canadian recommendations, they've doubled it to two meters. Again, it was all based on the same studies and rec you know founding uh, studies. I, again, people have added and doubled, I'm sure for enhanced safety reasons, but what it does do is create confusion when people are comparing different recommendations. Um, in terms of the disorder, uh, you can see that they focus on it being droplet or so-called fomite, where basically someone coughs on a surface, people touch it, and then touch their, um, their face, their mouth, and, and transmit it in that way. Um, they do talk about this airborne transmission, um, but they say that that might be possible in certain procedures, which we'll discuss at length, but they do um, claim that in of the 75 plus thousand cases that there was no reported airborne transmission cases. Um, Kath, I don't know if you have any thoughts on what the WHO said or likely that will come out as we discuss COVID in, in greater detail. Yeah, we can, uh, we can discuss this later, I think. Well covered later. Yeah. So what kind of disease is COVID-19? Um, it is a droplet disorder. Um, not only was it the WHO stating that, but most other organizations, um, uh, provincial or federal, um, are saying very similar. Um, the fact that um, countries have managed it reasonably successful, um, like similar coronaviruses in the past, which only required surgical masks, does support the fact that it is most likely a droplet disorder. Um, 
and perhaps we should dive into that in a little bit more detail. What, what does it mean to be droplet and what does it mean to be airborne? Um, and this talks about how the disease is transmitted. The classic airborne uh, disorder is tuberculosis, um, whereas the droplet ones of significance include influenza and, and SARS. If it was an airborne uh, infection, um, which the classic being TB, the particles that are expelled by a patient are small, what they talk about the being below five microns. And these so-called droplet nuclei um, can remain suspended in, in the air uh, atmosphere in the room for extended period of times. Um, how long? It depends on room exchanges and, and ventilation, but they remain suspended and, and therefore can get inhaled. And the recommendation is to use an N95 mask. What's interesting, and, and perhaps Kathy can comment on in just a minute, is the fact that you don't require a shield or goggles. And, and I often wonder if the individuals who are so adamant about requiring an N95 would then be willing to eliminate the eye protection. Um, because if it was truly an airborne disorder, you wouldn't require it. And certainly, I'm not recommending no eye protection. But if it was strictly airborne, that would be the case. In terms of droplets, um, they're larger than five microns, um, that they're transmitted up to about a meter. Uh, and again, the recommendation would be to have surgical masks for this along with the eye protection. Kath, can you clarify any of that? Uh, I think you're on mute. Sorry, no, I know uh, my space bar wasn't working there. Um, Droplets, I think, historically have been uh, uh, considered to be larger, um, typically moist, but obviously invisible particles that will fall to the floor with gravity. And previously, we used to say a meter. Um, there uh, has been extension of that, certainly in Ontario and uh, I think most of Canada, um, to say that droplets, um, droplet transmission could occur within a two-meter radius. Uh, the, the difference is that these are these really... Uh, are spread within that two meter radius. So they are not going to um, be transmissible if you are standing farther than two meters away, even in the absence of personal protective equipment. Whereas the airborne infections uh, will travel with air currents. And I think it's, it's just important to remember, and when we talk about um, aerosol gener generating procedures, we'll get into this a little bit more. Um, this is a droplet transmitted infection that we're talking about. Again, so uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into more detail later. And, and we'll build on that, Kath, because I think you'll agree that that's where a lot of the confusion is generated um, and confusion with what the recommendations should be. SARS and Quad, I don't think you're old enough to have had experience that, uh, like Kathy and myself. Um, and obviously, we experienced the fallout. Um, we weren't in Toronto, and, and certainly it had devastating and, and long-lasting impact uh, on individuals in, in Toronto. The, the number of deaths were significant. Um, I'm trying to recall correctly how many health professionals uh, passed away 
and for some reason I think it's 17, but I'm not sure I'm exactly correct on that. So certainly that was quite significant and uh, was, uh, was a tragedy. We did learn a lot from it. Um, at least in Ontario, it helped us prepare for this pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the preparation and process and recommendations uh, seem to have been uh, unfortunately dismissed or ignored when people uh, approach this, but a lot of it did translate. And that's why I think Ontario was certainly better prepared than, than other areas uh, for it. What was definitely learned from SARS was the, the huge importance of hand hygiene. Um, again, they, they cite the example of Vietnam was able to terminate the SARS without any airborne rooms, without any N95, but simply just good hygiene along with surgical masks. And, you know, they still have airborne disorders in Vietnam. So uh, it wasn't uh, in that regards. The case you'll, you'll hear cited often is this Hong Kong um, Amoy Gardens, um, where they felt that an improper sewage disposal system caused this rising pune of, uh, of SARS and, and caused a, an apartment complex to get uh, problems with, with infection. Um, I read it, I'm not sure I, I totally understand it, but certainly um, it uh, seemed very scientific in the New England. But a lot was learned from SARS. Um, it is a coronavirus, I think, the lessons from it are, are readily transferable. Um, Kath, I don't know if you want to build on SARS or? Um, I think it, uh, for those of us, particularly in Ontario, um, it just, it frames a lot of why we do what we do today in Ontario and uh, particularly with this new coronavirus um, and this pandemic, a lot of the initial guidance that came out in Ontario was based on uh, what we refer to as the precautionary principle, which were, were um, essentially lessons learned from SARS. Uh, and until we had a better understanding of what this uh, coronavirus was and how it was transmitted, even though uh, many of you may realize that there shouldn't be a reason why it would be transmitted differently uh, from other coronaviruses, but this being a new infection, um, we, uh, you know, in Ontario, opted to provide the highest level of PPE as our recommendations. That is the precautionary principle um, before scaling back. So many, many in Ontario are still, and particularly if there's anybody um, who worked in Toronto around the time, uh, many will remember that very clearly and the fear and anxiety it created. And um, it, uh, as I say, has, has sort of shaped Ontario's uh, approach to this at least initially. Yeah, no, that there was a lot learned uh, from it. They'll talk about the intubations and uh, the nosocomial spread, but uh, perhaps that we'll save that for our discussion if there's time. Um, but again, a lot of lessons learned. Um, we'll pick up the pace a little bit. I'm cognizant of the time that the, the CDC in the United States um, has put out recommendations for PPE and, and to be perfectly honest, they're kind of sitting on the fence. You see what they have their preferred is, um, which includes the N95 respirator, but they actually do say, interesting enough, an acceptable alternative is simply a face mask. Um, again, um, we'll, we'll dive that into that a little bit uh, more. 
they do talk about it being primarily a droplet disorder. Um, again, with the fulmite transmission, the same as the WHO. Um, they fully admit that airborne um, is uncertain, um, and their recommendation um, is, however, to to ideally have uh, an N95, um, but again, we'll have an acceptable alternative. In Ontario, um, where many of us uh, practice, the, the present recommendation um, for PPE is for the use of an isolation gown and you know, I won't specify, but it is written what level of, of gowns there is a, a grade to them. They also recommend the use of eyewear, um, be it goggles or a visor, um, along with one pair of gloves um, of a certain type that cover up the cuffs, so the picture is a little bit incorrect. Um, they also talk about masks, and, and there is a proviso of what type of mask to wear um, is a little bit, it depends. So the two types of masks, one is the so-called procedural surgical mask, um, and that is, is standard for droplet disorders, um, and that, that is the recommendations for the vast majority of situations um, in, related to COVID. They do talk about the N95 respirator, and, and that is cited as a recommendation for the much-beloved aerosol-generating medical procedures, AGMPs. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. Kath, I don't know if you have anything to add or we'll move on a little bit there. Um, so what are AGMPs, aerosol generating medical procedures? Now, I'm going to say that this is the biggest issue I had with, with, with PPE recommendations. And this is probably the issue that for me was the most poorly described and has created the most confusion um, problems, arguments, um, and has actually caused probably significant damage and mistrust. When we talk about aerosolization, um, clearly words matter. Um, and you can see that aerosols and drop, droplets get incorporated into it um, by, by the definition and how it's used. And that just adds to the confusion. It's very subjective, um, subject to misinterpretation, and the recommendations from it, quite frankly, keep changing. But some important take-home messages for me, and, and perhaps, Kathy, you can ex expand upon it, is the fact that aerosolization does not equal, is not synonymous with airborne requiring. Um, and I really think that a better term would be calling this droplet-generating procedures, but Perhaps, Kath, you, you, you can help clarify this for, for everyone, because I think this is the root of many of the issues and concerns about PPE. Yeah, I, um, I agree entirely. Uh, the word aerosol really means that you are generating liquid particles. Either the patient is generating them by an activity such as coughing or sneezing, or we are actually inducing that in a patient through activities such as bronchoscopy or intubation, for example. And the fact that we have in um, all of our aerosol generating procedure recommendations for COVID that you should be wearing an N95 respirator and ideally perform at the aerosol generating procedure in a negative pressure room automatically leads people to think that this is an airborne transmitted infection. 
I shouldn't say automatically, but I think frequently would lead people to believe that this is an airborne transmitted infection when in fact it's not. So just the, the use of the word aerosol generating, if you, if you go back to the definition of an aerosol, an aerosol is um, a suspension of liquid particles. And for droplet transmitted infections, most of those liquid particles will be droplet sized and they will, again, just as, the, just as if a patient coughs, they will fall to the floor once the procedure is done. And so um, technically, uh, you know, once the procedure has been completed, let's say an intubation, um, there should not be a suspension of airborne particles in the air. The droplets should have fallen to the floor and your aerosol generation should have ended. So the, the practices that we are recommending now actually probably exceed what is required um, when we're talking about aerosol generating procedures. Uh, they probably exceed what is required for a droplet transmitted infection. But again, uh, being on the safe side and employing the precautionary principle, um, we have still recommended the N95 respirator, the uh, negative pressure room when those are available. But um, I just want, I think it, it, it does lead to a lot of confusion and there is um, a tendency to equate uh, an aerosol generating procedure with an airborne transmitted disease. And uh, with the exception of TB, measles and varicella zoster, uh, we really don't have any other um, diseases that are truly transmitted by the airborne route. Thanks, Kat. Uh, and I'm guilty of that. But, you know, we decided to use airborne rooms for our procedures. Um, we even talk about how long afterwards you need to leave, you know, the door needs to be closed. Again, I think, unfortunately, we've taken airborne disorders, how we manage airborne disorders, like you said, TB and, and measles, and now extrapolated to this, and I think that certainly has contributed to the confusion. Um, but I, but I would also say that our provincial guidance does recommend uh, that we follow those procedures, uh, in the off chance that there's something that we don't know about this uh, infection, and we just want to make sure that we're we're providing our uh, healthcare workers with the uh, safest options. Excellent point. Excellent point. Where do these recommendations come from? Um, and this is the only study I'm going to talk about because nothing's more painful than people diving into studies during presentations. But this is quite important because this is what's cited by the WHO, by the CDC, um, by uh, the Ontario uh, recommendations. And sometimes they'll cite the WHO recommendations, which you know was a 110-page document. And if you go to it, it's based solely on this systematic review and no fault of the reviewer. Um, I mean, they can only review what is available, um, but they clearly said in their review that they considered it very low quality um, using the grade criteria. But you can see uh, 10 studies uh, were identified, all involved SARS patients, five case control, five retrospective uh, um, case series like presentations. From that evidence, you can see only four procedures uh, placed uh, the operators at significant risk. Um, and you'll say, hey, 
that's not our list that we're using, but this is where the evidence comes from. You can certainly see endotracheal intubation by far and away is, is the greatest risk um, based on, on four trials um, it, in both cases. Um, but again, the rest of it is of limited evidence. Um, and I think that's why uh, the recommendations are so muddy. Kathy, you've probably read the studies that went into all of this. Uh, what was your opinion of the review? Was it fair? Uh, I, I think the this systematic review, this was also, um, this is the uh, CADTH report that was then published as the same systematic review the following year in 2012. Um, these reviewers really were faced with trying to come up with some conclusions based on observational and low quality um, primary evidence. So it's very difficult to, to really know how, um, how significant uh, the risk is from these um, different procedures. The other thing to uh, just remember is when you go back to the primary papers that are included, um, many of them are observational or small cohort studies. There are a number of different factors that you don't see when you're only looking at the odds ratios that are associating a procedure that we recognize as being aerosol generating with healthcare worker illness. So the absence of uh, use of any PPE, for example, incorrect or what we would know now would be inadequate uh, personal protective equipment. So perhaps wearing eye protection, but not a mask or vice versa. The absence of hand hygiene, uh, careful observation of how personal protective equipment is removed so that there was no option for, for self-contamination or self-inoculation. Those details are missing when you look at a table like this, but when you read the papers, um, there, there, there is some discussion in um, some of them that clearly point out that healthcare providers who were infected uh, were not following what we would consider to be just basic routine practice, i.e. drop the precautions today. So um, I, I think that uh, that gets lost when you look at these um, odds ratios and the AGMPs that they're associated with. Thanks, Kat. Um, that said, um, this is what has certainly influenced subsequent recommendations, which, which we will go through. For Ontario, um, as of April 9th, um, this was the latest recommendations um, that could put together uh, from our IPAC uh, team. Um, the list keeps changing, um, so again, you know, check your latest list. But it's important to see what's not aerosol generating. And, and I think that is something that uh, um, is certainly a good place, at least for me to start. Ventilator disconnects, which has certainly uh, caused a lot of confusion in, in our ICUs, but is clearly on the list as not aerosol generating. Um, what's also um, unclear is how we are to apply the AGMPs, um, at least for me it was, was it just a COVID positive for possible patients or was that for all? I know for our institution in our ICU for non-invasive ventilation, we took the decision to apply that to everyone at present time. But again, it will be interesting to see how, how people will apply this. We'll go through three that, that 
some are on the list, and we'll go in more detail about extubation, CPR, and high flow oxygen. But Kath, I don't know if you have any comments for the list um, and uh, any corrections that might have happened in the last 24 hours or, or something since the slide no, was no, made. No changes to this in the last day that I'm aware of. Yay. Um, but uh, I think it, it, you know, it is quite controversial uh, for some of these things and the reasons uh, for that, we just discussed with the previous slide, but I would say uh, particularly for for those in Ontario, we have a, a list of what is considered to be aerosol generating procedures that is um, provided to us by uh, pub, um, yeah, Public Health Ontario, Public Health Ontario. And uh, if you are not within Ontario, then I would certainly refer to what your own jurisdictions consider to be aerosol generating procedures. I will say though that even between institutions in Ontario, there are things that you will find added uh, to this list that, um, you know, th there is obviously some uh, additional discussion that goes on uh, within, within institutions, um, but the evidence for some of those uh, procedures, and in fact, many of these procedures, um, in terms of being truly aerosol generating to the point that they require an N95 and a negative pressure room, is is questionable. Um, CPR is something that you will see on some lists, just chest compressions. They can certainly, uh, if they're forceful enough, generate droplets from a patient, but they would not uh, generate airborne particles. And if you are wearing routine droplet and, uh, sorry, droplet precautions with a, a procedure mask and eye protection, then you should be protected from those droplets. And, and uh, for many, well, I would say for most of these AGMPs, wearing a um, procedure mask or a surgical mask with eye protection uh, would be an effective barrier against um, inoculation and therefore the healthcare provider acquiring infection. Totally agree. And, and, and we'll present that in, in a little more detail, but for the absolutely totally agree with that. Probably the one that that's not has been on the list and wasn't on the latest list and and was one that uh, I'll be perfectly honest I thought initially should be on the list was the idea of extubation the removal of an endotracheotome and it, again I think this is because yes the patient is likely to cough very frequently it creates a lot of droplets but it's unclear is it aerosolization um, of it does it create an airborne like disorder um, and, and for me now, it's not as clear. And, and I think the fact that you go to a cough and a sneeze, um, not being um, an airborne problem um, is, is important. And that's where we keep going back that it's a droplet disorder. And, and initially when I put the image of, of the person coughing and um, the lovely lady getting a face full, um, I thought, oh, this is inflammatory. People are going to say, look, that's that's perfect evidence. But you look even in that small little space with the camera and whatever, how there's rapid dissipation of the droplets. You know, none of us have, have said that there is no droplets being generated in things as such. Um, but again, uh, the fact that within two meters, most of these droplets, you know, have already fallen and, and aren't being suspended. The, the recommendation of having a, a full mask with with eye protection, you can see why eye protection is so important for this, 
Um, you know, for me would mean for extubation, um, although every person in Ontario is granted the ability to make their own decision on what he or she feels is most appropriate, you can see why extubation isn't uniformly on, on everyone's list uh, as uh, an aerosol uh, generating medical uh, procedure. What do you think, Kath? I agree, Dave. Nothing more <laughs> to add there. So again, that, that may be surprising for people, um, but it, you know, with the idea of, of wearing a, a surgical mask and, and a face shield is probably more than adequate uh, for this um, aspect of it. I, I won't belabor about CPR as, as Kathy's already talked about it. As I like to tell people, it's, it's kind of two thirds, one third. Um, the idea of chest compressions and defibrillation are certainly not aerosol generating. Um, the fact that airway management, if you go back to the, um, the basis of, of all the rec recommendations, probably the highest risk. As many know that in our institution, we elected to go with an LMA um, with a HEPA filter on um, to, to try to decrease the risk. I'm not saying that's the best management strategy for, for CPR. Um, the issue is to, if people are gonna do what some were advocating to go to an airborne room to get a glide scope for video laryngoscopy, the delays in doing all of that uh, would certainly mean that the chance of having a favorable outcome with the patient would, would be highly unlikely. But I, I'm sure we'll revise our, our protected code loop um, approach. However, um, if you look at the evidence, it's, it's probably the airway that's the most contentious aspect of it, as, as Kathy already discussed. Anything to build on that, Kath? Or? Oh, okay. The final thing, um, to just to highlight about the aerosol um, aspect, is the high flow oxygen. And I think this is the one that I find the most troublesome that that keeps getting on the list because if you go back to the evidence I've not seen any evidence to support that it should be on the list you look at some of the European recommendations it's not there it's certainly highly advocated for the management of COVID patients um, uh, it reports out of Italy along with other European European sites along with Seattle certainly would suggest that it has a role um, we in, in at our institution here have an oxygen screening for COVID-19 that, that we put together and, and are using to help manage patients. And again, part of the aspects is to use the, the AIRVOs and various related devices. So right now for us, we would consider it um, aerosol generating, um, uh, except in certain circumstances. Um, Again, it, it's hard because we have to abide by our provincial rules um, and what our logic and what our hospital is, is suggesting is, is perhaps a little bit different. Kath, other than me confusing everyone, are you able to bring clarity to the topic? No, <laughs> I would just confuse everyone more. Okay, there you go. What also confused everyone was this study um, or this report that was put out in the New England uh, where they talked about persistence of aerosols more like an airborne type of disorder 
um, that they were able to generate um, with, with the new uh, coronavirus as compared to the one that caused SARS. Um, so they talk about using a three-jet nebulizer with a Goldberg drum um, to create an aerosol. Uh, so I think if you routinely use a three-jet collision nebulizer and a Goldberg drum that you should consider that um, aerosol generating medical procedure. Uh, I'm not sure the significance of this for our management. Certainly it caused a lot of confusion. Um, the significance of RNA samples being detected as well in, in, in the air, um, that doesn't necessarily mean the virus is viable. And I think that's a hard concept to appreciate. Um, perhaps, Kathy, you can explain it better than, than I did. Like, well, I think probably most people appreciate that, that, um, that PCR is really just looking at specific, uh, to, to really simplify it, specific um, sequences or targets in nucleic acids. So the fact that you can detect those specific targets doesn't actually mean that there is viable virus that you're detecting. And um, that is uh, not a, a limitation of PCR only with COVID testing, but any PCR that we uh, are using clinically uh, may have the same limitations. This experiment uh, is also similar to other, you will find, quote, evidence of, of other um, pathogens being airborne. Influenza is one, uh, coronavirus is the other one based on some experimental studies like this. And uh, those are not, um, they really haven't been replicated in, in vivo. Well, obviously you couldn't replicate this in vivo, but um, much of the evidence that, that uh, is used as support of airborne transmission is in fact uh, experimental evidence. Thanks, Kat. So with that said, we recognize that, that the recommendations is the use of surgical masks, except for the specific procedures we've already gone through, along with the use of gowns, gloves, um, and face protect or eyewear protection. What do you do with the shortages? Um, and and let's face it, there's shortages everywhere. Um, I was getting emails every couple of days saying how you know they had. I could order it from some disreputable person who was trying to sell things. When you look at how the prices surge, it's, it's amazing. Um, six times for surgical masks, other things a little less. So to meet the rising global demand, the WHO estimated that world production had to increase by at least 40%. Um, and so a rational and appropriate use of PPE was, was certainly urgently uh, required for all of us to, to abide by. What could we do? Well, again, let's increase our supply. Now, that's perhaps easier said than done, and I think we're all familiar with companies trying to repurpose and 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 do a shift to increase production. Uh, my favorite was the uh, um, beer companies suddenly producing hand sanitizer. You know, I have mine here that uh, a colleague of mine was able to secure. So. We do have it and certainly appreciate of the companies doing so. 3D printing suddenly has gotten vogue and you can see uh, my ugly mug there. And But uh, our, our 3D department has done an excellent job helping with this as has the community. Again, where these versions fit in, um, that's perhaps uh, a different discussion, but certainly it's been helpful. 
the donation of supplies. I think we're all very grateful. What you see there is a R95 mask. Um, and, you know, three or four weeks ago, I learned the difference. You know, it's in terms of oil penetration. Uh, N stands for no, um, not resistant to oil, whereas R95 is partially resistant, and there's a P95. So again, they can be substituted um, in, and the supplies of those have, have also been consumed. Other strategies to increase your PPE is, is first and foremost, is, is to decrease inappropriate use. And, and that is a very contentious topic and, and filled with emotion. And, and I don't say that flippantly, but certainly we need to have appropriate stewardship. Uh, you know, hearing people going in for two minutes, coming out to answer something, and then going back in with new equipment. That kind of stuff, certainly, I don't think anyone would agree that that's a good use of, of PPE. So we need to do what we can to, to use it appropriately. Uh, there's strategies I think all are very familiar with to limit the need. To minimize contacts, minimize the number of people going into a room, so although we are in our teaching location, we shouldn't be consuming it in that way. Restrict the N95s to appropriate um, procedures. Again, I, I realize that that can cause emotional and, and anxiety, um, but if you base it on the evidence and sound recommendations, that, that is something to strongly um, urge and consider. But we also need to change how we do things, um, practice differently. Um, the decreased precautions sooner than later, if they're not fully required, then ideally we should get patients off of that. And um, perhaps if there's time, we'll talk about how to discontinue uh, COVID precautions. But again, these strategies certainly are important to help increase supplies. Kath, anything to add or? Dave, you're, you're doing such a great job. I don't need to add anything. Okay. This is where we start getting a little bit crazy. Um, to increase and optimize uh, the length of use. Again, there is recommendations that come both from WHO, from provincial. The fact that you can use it for multiple patients, and now you're not gonna go from a COVID positive to a COVID negative, but if you have similar cohorts, um, there are recommendations uh, that allow for this. Um, certainly replace it if it's wet, damaged, or if you've soiled it, if you've touched your face, and certainly that, that should be replaced. Um, the N95, and certainly with all the shortages, our site has had to do additional testing. Um, recommendations would be for the test to use out-of-date um, N95 masks and perhaps uh, limit who requires it to those who will actually use it. Um, but again, there's also the potential of repurposing the mass um, for later on. The alternate devices, and you can see that uh, certainly we're, we're exploring every possibility. That's a, a scuba mask or snorkeling mask, um, and we're to try to get that tested um, early this week. Um, the idea, you can see the, the valve has been adjusted. If you think I'm just making it up, you know. I have that, I guess, as my backup in case uh, uh, there's an issue in the office here. But uh, again, it, it's a possibility. The use of alternate devices, alternative devices, um, is is advocated. But again, this is fifth line in, in the recommendation. This isn't 
isn't top of the of that. And the question really is, are these safe? And and I don't think we are able to easily answer that. And we're trying to see if they're effective. And so it'll be interesting to see how it works in our um, our, our screening test. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on poppers, poppers. Um, it's interesting that they are designed for airborne disorders. Um, they're heavy. I've been trained on it, but my training's probably out of date, as, as Kathy will attest. You often need a spotter. Um, and there's actually evidence that paradoxically, you increase your contamination when you're taking it off. What are your thoughts on, on PAPRs, uh, Kat? Um, so PAPRs, I think, uh, are in keeping with many other questions that we've had about additional PPE. So adding things beyond what is, sorry if you can hear the helicopter in the background, um, uh, adding to what is typically recommended. And in the photo, you can see this um, individual, hang on. That probably won't help very much. Um, in a one-piece Tyvek or other suit with boots and tape holding everything together, the more you add, often the more difficult it is to get out of and the higher your risk of self-contamination. So um, PAPRs work. Our, our main challenge with it is that the majority of our healthcare workers wouldn't know how to use them safely and properly. They also do require two people to get out of when you're talking about um, removal uh, after potential exposure to an, an infectious uh, pathogen like COVID, for example. Excellent. I am cognizant of the time, Claude. I think we're okay to go past one, are we? Okay. So not to worry, everyone. Uh, we are cognizant of the time, but I think Absolutely. we can go 10 minutes um, afterwards if Kathy's okay with that. Um, the final strategy for increasing prolonging PPE, and this is very contentious, obviously. This is where you get into reprocessing uh, PPEs. I know our institution is collecting them. Um, this isn't a new idea. This started about three years ago. There's some research looking into it. Obviously, it makes individuals uncomfortable, um, and this is not first-line recommendations, um, but we'll see where that goes and if they're able to do it, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll adapt. Some of the other unorthodox is, is to use non-other um, countries' standards. Um, Out-of-date ones, uh, I'll be honest, that one doesn't concern me as much as others, but perhaps that's my personal bias. Um, as opposed to using a different standard, I'd rather use one that's out-of-date to, to some degree than a different standard. But again, ideally we have um, an adequate supply of up-to-date uh, equipment. Um, and that is some of the strategies to do it. Um, before we do our question and answer, I had a few questions that I thought um, can start off. These might be some FAQs that at least I've experienced, and, and I suspect, Kathy, you've done it as well. Um, what do you think about neck coverage? Is that absolutely required, particularly for those intubating? Uh, I think the, the issue of neck coverage um, has definitely come up. There have been some, I'm going to call them experimental, um, uh, 
studies or experiments um, where you know there there has been demonstration of uh, droplets contaminating the neck with intubation if you're if you're actually equating um, glow germ laden liquid with uh, with sputum. Um, I think internally we've addressed that for the most part using longer face shields so that when you actually are intubating, uh, in fact, there, there is uh, adequate coverage and protection of your neck um, and there is no uh, space that's left between the bottom of the face shield and the gown. It's a great point too because um, I get a little bit nervous about people removing like any kind of neck coverage in terms of getting themselves um, contaminated. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point also. And that goes back to the statement that, you know, anytime you add an additional piece, uh, particularly when people aren't used to it, we know that it's, it's more challenging to get out of and again, just uh, adds opportunity for self-contamination. Excellent point. I, and I can certainly appreciate the challenges, you know, and it's understandable people don't want their neck exposed. Uh, it, it's if the solution is worse than the problem um, is, is always a concern that as Quad has alluded to. Perhaps related to that is the use of enhanced barriers. And these are these intubation shields. And Kathy will know there's still some in my office uh, trying to distribute them. Um, I guess I have mixed feelings on these. Um, if it's close, I can understand how it uh, um, would prevent some of the, the release of the droplets up. Um, I, I am worried about making it more awkward uh, for myself when, when intubating. Um, and I guess the other question is how do we clean them um, to ensure that they're adequately clean? But what are your thoughts about these enhanced barriers or so-called intubation shields? Because it does fit into that hierarchy if you go back to it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think the points that you've made are just things to consider. And the other also is, you know, depending on the patient, is there any um, unexpected adverse effect on the patient? If you're having more difficulty intubating and, and you know, the head is in a little box, uh, I'm not sure if that actually will complicate things or compromise the patient in any way. Um, certainly with anything that is... Um, uh, purpose built for things like this. We, we always like to know that they are actually compatible with um, cleaning disinfectants that we have uh, in hospitals. Um, there's little point in bringing something in that we're going to destroy with one attempt at cleaning. Um, but uh, I, I don't know, it, again, in other centers, how, how widely rolled out these are. Um, but uh, I think with, you know, if we're able to, to ensure that we have a continued supply of adequate personal protective equipment, I, I'm not really sure if, they're, if they'll be needed. As somebody who doesn't intubate, as many of you will recognize, um, that's, you know, there, there are obviously um, specifics that I can't comment on though, but um, I'm not sure where they fit in. And I guess I'm, I'm still a little bit out on, on my opinion. I certainly didn't want anyone to feel that we didn't care about their safety. So certainly that's why we proceeded with it. Um, removing COVID status to preserve PPE, um, good idea, bad idea, you know, false reassurance. What are your thoughts? Um, so the way, the way we work, uh, is that if somebody has been tested for COVID, 
our assumption is that there's a reason why they've been tested and they haven't been tested for, um, you know, just because or because they came from a retirement home or because they're pre-op or because they um, might have known somebody else who was, uh, who was sick but not a COVID patient. Um, so I think, first of all, we need to be careful with um, who we're testing. And again, for everyone in Ontario, our testing guidelines have been updated, I think, twice in the last three days. So it's hard to keep track of, but there are a lot of symptoms that are now included as atypical symptoms where you can consider testing someone. But uh, we would also always say, please use your clinical judgment. And um, if it doesn't make sense that a patient would have COVID because they're reporting to you that they're a little bit more tired um, and there's another obvious explanation for that, then perhaps they don't need to be tested. So that's the first thing. The second thing is obviously for those people who are tested, we need to be confident that in fact they don't have COVID. So if you're symptomatic, um, our PCRs, we are told, are quite um, sensitive. But um, if your test is negative and there is no or very low suspicion of COVID or there's another alternate diagnosis, then yes, if we can get that patient off um, off those precautions, it will definitely conserve PPE. Um, and uh, we certainly um, are trying to do that at least within, within TOH. Uh, it's not a terribly efficient process. And um, that said, uh, I agree that if we can get patients off when we're confident that they don't have COVID, that, that will help us uh, in, many, in many ways actually more than just conserving PPE. Which kind of leads into the role of increased screening. I, I, I guess that's a hard one to answer, you know, as that's in a state of flux. Because um, false reassurance, do you think potentially with that? Yeah. So screening um, by screening, I think you mean testing asymptomatic individuals. And I know there's a lot of discussion about that. And why don't we do this? And um, I. I Honestly, I'm not sure how our test performs in the absence of symptoms. Certainly, if you're symptomatic, again, our, uh, our um, lab colleagues will tell us that the test actually performs quite well. But there is also no reassurance that in two or three days, uh, when you actually do start to uh, develop symptoms, that if you retested, they would in fact be positive. So it may not be a false negative. It just may be false reassurance that somebody has not um, has not become infected yet. And, um, you know, if we could, if we could screen everybody on a regular basis, that may be a very different uh, approach that we'd be able to take, but obviously that's not a reality. And, and, and perhaps the point of care may, may change. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. I hope that was useful for you guys. Please leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Quadcast. Please don't hesitate to subscribe, whether it's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We really appreciate your support. Leave a five-star rating if you're up to it. I want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible for their support. As you may have seen, we're continuing to do some webinars on not just COVID-19 content, but other content just to give you an opportunity for some Q&A. So stay tuned for that. Please sign up when available. I want to thank our team at 
Solving Healthcare, continuing to produce amazing show notes. We're going to start a newsletter soon. Social media team, we really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Quadcast listeners, stay healthy, stay home, and remember, we'll get through this. Take care, everybody.